This morning we are starting a new sermon series that is a bit different than what we usually do. Normally in a series here at First SF, we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible, or at least a section of a book of a Bible. But as we were praying through where we are as a church right now, the season that we're in, and what we thought would be most helpful, we decided that it would be a very important time for us as a church to study together a very important biblical concept known as the spiritual disciplines. So starting this week and leading all the way up to Easter, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look every week at a specific text that deals with a specific spiritual discipline. We're going to talk about what that spiritual discipline is. We're going to talk about how to practice that spiritual discipline. But more than those things, we're going to talk about why these spiritual disciplines are important in the life of a believer. How do these spiritual disciplines draw us closer to God, which is why we called this series Closer. Almost 10 years ago, a man named Simon Sinek presented a TED Talk that would go on to become viral, and it was about this one singular topic. He called it Start With Why. I would imagine that some of you have seen that TED Talk. Some of you may have read his book that he came out with after that, but his main point is very simple. His main point, and you're going to see a, a three circles on the screen here, He says that when most people talk about something or they ask you to do something, they focus on two questions. They focus on what and how, but very rarely do they address the more important question, which he calls the golden circle of why. So for instance, say that we here at First SF need new volunteers to work in in our youth ministry. Most of the time, what happens? Somebody stands up from the stage, and we make this announcement. We give you the what. We say, we need youth volunteers. Sign up after the service, right? That's what we do. Perhaps we may even show you how, what that looks like. We may say, you know what? We need youth leaders that will give two Sunday mornings a month at 9.15 a.m. to pour in their lives into junior high and senior high students. That's the how, the what and the how. That's what a lot of times we focus on. The problem is, if I make that announcement, how many people do you think are going to sign up right after the service? You may think some, none. No matter what announcements we make like that, no one shows up, no one signs up. Why? Because no one cares about the how or the what if they don't really believe that answer to the question of why. Why shows us the purpose. Why shows us why something is important. So when giving an announcement about youth ministry, which is an actual need in our body, really what I need to say is this. We believe the salvation and spiritual growth of the next generation is of utmost importance to God because both the future leadership of the church and the spread of the gospel absolutely will be in the hands of those in our junior high and high school ministry. So, with that in mind, we'd love for you to sign up to serve on Sunday mornings at 9.15 a.m. and pour your lives into these junior high and high school students. The why makes all the difference, right? Why matters. Let me give you a personal example of this. Uh, Growing up, I hated to read. Did not enjoy reading. I didn't want to read anything. And every year, my teachers, year after year, would say, Ryan, you need to read. You need to read. Here's a classic. Here's how to read. Here's how to do this. And yet, I never read anything. I literally watched ESPN. That was all I did in my elementary days. No reading. My junior year comes about, and my senior pastor invites me 
over to lunch. He knows that I have this calling on my life for vocational ministry. And so he invites me over. And he, when I come over for lunch, has three books on the table. And you want to know what he says to me? He says, Ryan, do you want to be a healthy leader of Jesus' church? Do you want to make an impact that is much more eternal in significance than than most in this life? That's kind of the question he asked. That was the theme of the question he asked. And he said, if that's the case, you will become a reader. And here's three books to get you started. You want to know what happened? Within that month, I read all three of those books, and I have been reading ever since. What was the difference? My teachers focused on the what and the how. You need to read. Here's how to do it. My senior pastor focused on the why. He showed me why does reading matter to you? Why does it matter to what you are called to do? And I've never been the same. Now, I tell you all of that, give you all of that background to say this. When it comes to spiritual disciplines, a lot of the times our focus gets stuck on the what and the how, right? It's what we do in church. We, we tell you what to do. Read your Bible, pray, worship, give, serve. A lot of times we tell you how to do it. We say, not only do you need to read, but here's a Bible reading plan that can show you how to do it. Here's how to pray, acknowledge, confess, you know, uh, give thanksgiving, supplication. Here's how you pray. Here's how to do this. Here's how to do that. And yet here's a problem that I see in the modern church. We don't have a lack of knowledge of knowing what to do and how to do it. We have all those things, and yet what do we struggle with? We struggle to still practice these disciplines that God has given to us for our good. We struggle to live them out. Why? Because we don't understand. We don't really believe the why behind the spiritual disciplines. And so our goal in this sermon series is not just to give you the what. We are going to tell you what the spiritual disciplines are. It's not just to tell you how to do the spiritual disciplines. Yes, we're going to give you that information. But at the core of this sermon series, we want you to understand why do we as Christians practice these spiritual disciplines? Why do they matter? How do they really draw us closer to our God. That is what we're going to be doing in this sermon series. Now today, just a little background for this text that we're reading out of 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a younger pastor named Timothy. Uh, Paul had mentored Timothy. He had poured his life into Timothy. And at this point, he had sent Timothy to the city of Ephesus to to strengthen the church, to establish the, the new church and the new Christians that were there. Well, as happens, this new pastor needed wisdom for him from his mentor. So he had sent Timothy, or he had sent Paul questions, and 1 Timothy is a letter written in response to those questions. He's going to tell Timothy many things, but one of his most important instructions about the life of a Christian to Timothy comes in this verse that we read in verse 7. So if you would, look at it with me. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, he says these words have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. That's the what of this passage. That's the command. That is what Paul is calling Timothy and all of us to do. He looks at each one of us and he says, train yourself for godliness. Now, he gets directly to this point because many of the early believers in Ephesus had become distracted from the faith that had been handed down by the Apostle Paul. 
They had become enamored with what Paul in this letter calls false gospels, false teachers, teachings, and forms of worship that had moved them away from the true God, the God of Scripture, the God who had saved them from their sin. They had been distracted and moved away from these false teachings. So Paul very directly looks at Timothy and he says, have nothing to do with those teachings. Stop getting distracted. Don't spend your time on these silly myths. Don't spend your time looking and examining them. They are of no worth to you. They are a waste of your time. Rather, with your time, what should you do then? He says, use your time training for godliness. Train for godliness. Get to know the real God. Now, let's take a minute and make sure that we understand those two words, both training and godliness. There's no more important word in this text than that word godliness. Uh, Paul uses this word eight times in this one letter alone. It is something that carried great worth and great value to him. What does that word godliest mean? Well, godliness is a word that combines the, the reality of a person intimately knowing the true God and then having their life reflect that knowledge. That's what it means to, to live for godliness, to train for godliness. It means to know the living God and to have your life show that you know the living God, that it reveals that you know the living God. He says, train for godliness. You see, Paul knows that every single one of you in this room can train for and work for and, and seek out a lot of different outcomes for your life. He knows that you can pour your life into building a successful career. You can pour your life into building a family. He can pour your life into building a reputation. But what he's saying in this text is there's no greater outcome from which we should train and work for than this idea of godliness, of actually knowing God and having our life represent that knowledge. I wonder this morning, if you were completely honest, completely honest, not what you say you know, but if you know what's really going in your heart, how much time do you spend in the pursuit of godliness? How much time do you spend really getting to know God? How well do you really know the God that is represented in this book? That's the question that Paul wants to ask of us. Does your life reflect that knowledge? Now, of course, let me say this. No amount of personal training or personal effort could ever bring any one of us into relationship with God. Okay, The scripture is abundantly clear about that. The scripture says that God is, is infinitely pure. He is holy. He is perfect in every way. He is just. He is all of these things. And if we're honest, we know we're none of those things. God is all of those things. We are not, which means that we're separated from God. From Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to you and I living in San Francisco, each one of us is part of a broken world because sin has infected everything. Our choices, our desires, everything is distorted by the reality of sin, by rebellion toward the God who created us. And the result of that rebellion, the scriptures tell us, is separation. We cannot be connected from God. Our sin cannot be in the presence of this perfect, infinitely pure, amazing, wonderful God. Therefore, we're separated from him. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and we have been out of the presence of God ever since. But what the scriptures also tell us is that because of his unbelievable, unfailing love for us, 
that God has made a way for us to be reconnected to him. It's not anything that we could do. There's not enough good things I can do. It's not enough boxes that I can check off of a list. He says that he, we couldn't do anything, but God came and made a way for us to be forgiven, for us to be restored and reconnected to him. You find this message, this good news, all through the New Testament. John 3, 16, a verse that almost all of you probably heard. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Another verse, Colossians 1.13, says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, do you hear the common thread among all those passages? God loved God gave, God saved, God delivered, God transferred. All of our salvation is a gift of God. None of us can earn that. None of us could be good enough to connect ourselves with God, but God, because he loved us, made a way through the death and resurrection of Jesus for us to be brought back into relationship with him. That church is amazing news. For some of you this morning, it may be you think this idea of drawing closer to God, it's impossible to get closer to God if you don't know him. And that knowing him begins with acknowledging, I'm a sinner, there's nothing I could do to be connected with you, but I see that you have provided what was needed. You came, and on the cross, you took the punishment for sin that I deserve. I'm going to trust in the work of Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. When you do that, when you repent of your sins and you place your trust in Christ, you are connected with God forever. That's the starting point. Before you can get closer, you have to know him. But church, here's a problem that I see. Many of us, sadly, instead of letting that being the starting place of our relationship with God, we make that the end. Many of us have been saved. We've been reconnected with God, but we think, well, if I'm saved and I know God, that's as much as I need to pursue him. That's as close as I need to get. Friends, more than anything else in this sermon series, what we are hoping is that you will see that your salvation was merely the starting point of knowing the God of Scripture. The God that is revealed in Scripture is infinite in every way. Think about that. He is limitless which means the more that you know him, the more that you see him, the more that you experience him, the more you realize that you haven't even scratched the surface of who this God really is. Do you believe that, church family? That our pursuit of God can never be complete. One of my heroes in the faith, Johnny Erickson Tata, in her book makes this point. She says this, One of the most important, or sorry, one of the most wonderful things about knowing God is that there is always so much more to know. Just when we least expect it, he intrudes into our neat and tidy notions about who he is and how he works. How many of you have a relationship with God like that? A.W. Tozer, a popular pastor in the early 1900s, said this. He said, God can show a new aspect of his glory to us every day for all the days of eternity, and we have but begun to explore the depths of the riches of his infinite being. 
The more you know and experience of God, the more you realize there is so much more that I don't know. Which means this, to settle for a surface level knowledge of God, it makes no sense. It would be like the, the pilgrims on the Mayflower coming and seeing the coastline of this new land and saying, okay, we're good. We've seen it. We've got there. Let's go no further. When we know the real God, we see that everything that we experience, the glimpses we get of his power and his presence, they're just a, a glimpse of who God really is. And so we pursue him with everything that we are. I'm afraid far too many of us in this room have settled for a very surface level knowledge of our God. There are others in this room that I believe have settled for a different kind of knowledge of God, what John Snyder, another pastor, calls a hearsay knowledge of God. This is not so much surface level as it is a counterfeit knowledge of God, because why? It's not personal. Hearsay knowledge of God says this, I don't have to know God personally. I don't need to experience him personally. All I have to do is ascribe to the God that my pastor talks about or that teacher talks about, or that Christian book tells me about. I believe those things about that God. It's a hearsay knowledge of God. You don't know God intimately. You don't pursue him. You just believe what others tell you about him. And then finally, I think there are others of us in this room that, that have a ton of knowledge about God. Uh, perhaps you grew up in the church, or perhaps you're here every Sunday, and you could tell me all of the attributes of God. You could look at me and you'd be able to say, yes, God is uh, omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is all-powerful. He is holy. He is just. He is loving. He is merciful. You could go through the list and you could tell me all about the God of Scripture. But that knowledge of God never actually translates into your everyday life. It's a powerless knowledge of God. A knowledge that is put in your mind with all the other unimportant facts that just gain cobwebs, right? We only pull it out on Sunday mornings when we need to use it to speak about God. But we don't know God. We don't know his power. We don't know his presence. We aren't in a relationship with that God. Friends, we must remember that this word godliness that we're being called to pursue is not just knowing facts about God. It entails knowing him personally in such a way that he shapes every part of our lives. I wonder how many of you in this room this morning woke up with this amazing thought, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere that I am. Did that influence you at all? Did it influence what you did when you woke up? Did it influence what you, the clothes you picked out? Did it influence how you treated your spouse when they were running late? Did it influence how how you treated the people on the roads? Did it influence what you talked about in this group? The fact that God is omnipresent, he is everywhere. He's with you at all times. And that's just one piece of who God is. If we truly know God, we cannot help but have our lives and our actions and our thoughts changed by his reality. We no longer live as if we're the center of the universe. We realize he is the center of the universe. Where we have settled for hearsay knowledge or surface level knowledge or powerless knowledge of God, Paul looks to us today and he says, friends, it is time for training. It's time to train yourselves for godliness. It's time to, to put godliness as the ultimate pursuit of your life. That word train is a Greek word, gymnase, which is, is the root from which we get our words gymnastics or gymnasium. It's a, it's a word that has the stench of sweat, right? 
to train yourself. Any of you done any major training, maybe a sport or a 5K or a, a marathon, you know training doesn't come naturally, right? You have to be intentional about training. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. And it also doesn't just happen overnight. I don't go to the gym three days in a week and say, man, I should look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. What's going on here, right? We know that training takes endurance. It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes continual daily decision-making. And that's what Paul is pointing us to in this text. He says this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What Paul is saying is the training that he is calling us to this pursuit of godliness takes intentionality and it takes sacrifice. It takes the willingness to say no to many things, even good things, so that we can say yes to what is most important. As he was speaking about this language of, of running for a prize, an imperishable wreath, I couldn't help but think about the Olympics, which I think the Winter Olympics start this week, do they not, I think? Maybe Friday or Saturday? How many of you will watch the Winter Olympics? Some of you, not many of you, that's okay. I don't know that I will watch it either. But I am intrigued with this idea of the Olympics. These athletes literally spend their entire lives training for this one event. There was a recent study that was done, I saw it last week, that said this, an Olympic athlete will train an average of 10,000 hours over the last four years getting ready for the one event that they're going to do. 10,000 hours. Think about how many things they would have to say no to so that they could say yes to this goal of training so that they could win the prize, a gold medal, to be the best in the world. Well, Paul looks at every single one of us this morning and he says, you are training for something so much more important than a gold medal. He says, you're training for godliness. You're putting yourself in a place where you can know me intimately, that you can grow in your knowledge of me. And what that requires then is intentionality. It requires you saying no to many things, even really good things, so that you can say yes to this one pursuit of godliness. So the question for us this morning is this, are we pursuing godliness? Do we truly desire to know God in such a way that he shapes every part of our lives? That's the what, train for godliness. The question then becomes, how? How does one train for godliness? And we've already talked about this, but I would submit to you that that training comes in the form in scripture of the spiritual disciplines. It's interesting, you won't find that word, spiritual disciplines, that phrase in the scriptures. And yet, as you read through the Bible, you find that there are certain actions that come up over and over again that God has commanded that put you in a position to be in relationship with God, to, to grow in your relationship with God. Uh, Donald Whitney wrote a great book on, on the spiritual disciplines, and we're going to be pulling from that book throughout this series. Another good book is by Richard Foster on this topic. But he defines spiritual disciplines in this way. He says, spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture 
that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. So as you look at that definition, I think there's a couple of things just to make sure that you notice. Number one, first and foremost, spiritual disciplines are practices. When we talk about spiritual disciplines, we're not talking about spiritual gifts. We're not talking about the fruit of the Spirit, things like joy and peace. We're not talking about characteristics of a person. We're talking about things that you and I are called to do. They're practices. In this sermon series, we're going to look at specific things that you and I are called to do. We're going to look at what it looks like to to meditate on God's Word and memorize God's Word. We're going to look at what it looks like to pray, to fast, to worship, to serve one another, to to, to be a good steward of our time and resources, to, to, to worship together as a church family. We're going to be looking at actions that we're called to do. Sp- spiritual gifts are practices that we do. Second, I would emphasize that all the practices we're going to be discussing are absolutely 100% biblical, okay? They are commanded in the scriptures. Now, you may say, well, Ryan, that's common sense, but, but you'd be surprised how many people just pick and choose things from their life that they enjoy doing, and they say, this is my spiritual discipline. This is what draws me closer to God. Things like gardening and surfing and whatever they find on Oprah. You know, whatever it is, they say, this is, this is what draws me close to God. All the while, they ignore the things that God has told us bring us into relationship with him, draw us closer to him. This week, in our sermon series, we're going to study spiritual disciplines that are biblical, we know that God has provided everything that is necessary for our spiritual growth in the scriptures. Therefore, that's going to be our limit test, limitless test for spiritual disciplines. Finally, I want to make clear that while spiritual disciplines put us on the pathway where spiritual growth can happen, in and of themselves, spiritual disciplines cannot create growth. Okay? In and of themselves, the spiritual disciplines will not bring you closer to God. Doing an action in and of itself cannot do that. Now, let me give you a, a passage of Scripture that I think does a good job of explaining this. Galatians 6, verse 8 says this. It says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, of course, that's a farming illustration. I think it's very instructive for us. Because think about this. No matter what a farmer does, he cannot cause a plant to grow. Is that not true? He can't make something grow. He does not give life to the seed. He does not do that. But what does a farmer do? Uh, A farmer cultivates the land so that it can be in a position for that growth to occur. He goes out and he, he, he tills the land. He, he puts in the seed. He puts in the water. Day by day, he cares for it. He creates an environment where it can grow. But he himself does not grow that crop. Does that make sense? It's the same thing with the spiritual disciplines. You see, the spiritual disciplines put us as Christians in a place where God can work his transforming work in our lives. In and of themselves, me reading the Bible is not going to draw me closer to God. Me checking it off a list, just doing an action, that's not going to draw me closer to God. But if I come and I cultivate my life in such a way with these disciplines that I am ready for God to do his work, what we see is growth begin to happen. He who sows to the Spirit reaps not of the Spirit, but from the Spirit, that growth that he desires. 
God is the only one that can create spiritual growth. In the same way that he's the only one that can draw us into relationship with him, he's the only one that can draw us closer to him. But that does not mean that we as Christians are not called to do our part. And our part is what Paul is talking about here, the spiritual disciplines. He says, we toil and we strive. Philippians 2 verse 12 says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 1.29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within. So do you see that picture? He says, we are to work, we're to do these things, but even our energy, even our desire to draw closer to God is a gift of God. Yes, we put ourselves in a position where God can do his work, but only he can change us from the inside out. I think sometimes it's so easy for us to look at the great men and women of our faith and think they have something that we don't. They had some deeper connection with God. But friends, you need to understand every person that has become close to God has done so through the road of training. Training for godliness. Putting the pursuit of God in front of all the other pursuits of their life. This is what we are called to. Train for godliness. This is not a command to the, the, the Navy SEAL Christian, right? It's a command to all of us. This is what we are called to do, to toil and to train. Well, that brings us to our last question. Why? Why are we to train for godliness through the practice of spiritual disciplines? Well, it's very simple. Growing in the knowledge of God is of greater worth than anything else that you will ever pursue in your life. If you believe that, you're not going to struggle with the disciplines. Where we struggle to believe that, that's going to reveal why we struggle with the spiritual disciplines. Growing in the knowledge of God is of greater worth than anything else you could ever pursue. He says this in verse 7 and 8. He says, rather train yourself for godliness. Why? For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You see, in these verses, Paul uses parallelism to, to create a contrast to show us that there is one kind of training that is superior to the other. He contrasts bodily training with training for godliness. He says, on the one hand, training your body, it's not a bad thing, okay? For those of you in this room that love working out, he says, that's not a bad thing. Training the body has some good benefits. It helps you to be healthy. It helps you to be more confident when you post those swimsuit pictures on social media. It helps you, right? There's, there's benefits to bodily training. But he says bodily training is limited in two ways. Number one, it's limited just to your body. At the end of the day, your bodily training is only going to affect your body. But number two, it's limited to this life. It doesn't matter how many push-ups you do. It doesn't matter how many runs you go along the Embarcadero. That is not going to help you after you die. The limit of bodily training is when you die. But he says, not so with godliness. Not so with pursuing the knowledge of God, of growing in your knowledge of God and knowing him intimately. That has reward how for all things. The pursuit of God changes everything. It changes what happens in your soul. It changes your emotions. It changes your behavior. It changes your relationships. It changes your family. It changes your legacy. It changes, it changes your joy. 
changes your peace. It changes your purpose. Pursuing God is a benefit of all things. And you want to know something? It does not end with death. On the day that death comes, as it will for every single one of us in this room, Paul says the one who has spent their time in training, seeking to know and love and serve God, will realize in that moment that the glimpses of his power and his presence and his character that they received in this life, again, were merely the coastline of who he really is. No one will regret saying no to the endeavors of this life in the pursuit of godliness on that day. It will be very clear, crystal clear on that day that the pursuit of godliness was the only endeavor that actually had any real worth. The question for us as a church, living so many years later, is this, do we truly believe that? Do we truly believe that the greatest endeavor of our life is to actually know God and not just know him at a surface level, but dig every day deeper and deeper and deeper into who he is? All week I've been wrestling with this passage from Jeremiah where God speaks to the prophet and he says these words. I want you to hear this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this one thing, that he understands and knows me. In this life, we boast about many endeavors. How many of us boast in that one thing that we understand and know the living God who created us, redeemed us, saved us from our sin, and dwells us and will one day bring us into his glory. Do we understand and know him? Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says this saying is true. It is trustworthy and worthy of acceptance. I don't know about you, but I needed this encouragement this week because I am tempted to believe that other endeavors have more worth than pursuing God. I'm tempted to believe that success, relationships, career, wealth, reputation, glory, I'm tempted to believe that striving after these things is what will really bring me the life that I desire. On a very minute level, I'm tempted to believe when I wake up that that extra hour of sleep is of greater worth than pursuing God in the morning. Or getting my things off my to-do list is more important. Or answering those emails or spending time with that friend or physically doing a workout. I'm tempted to believe that those things are greater endeavors than my pursuit of knowing and being with the true God. He says this is a trustworthy statement. It is worthy of living after. If you see the disciplines as avenues where you really get to know God, friends, and you see that as the most worthy thing, these these disciplines that we're going to talk about, yes, they will absolutely become part of your life. But they have to be more than a checklist. You can't just do these disciplines because I've told you. You can't just do them because you think they're the right thing to do. You do them because you want to know the God who created you. You want to know him intimately, personally. Know that he is the greatest treasure. My prayer is that we believe that. 
And that even this week, we would pursue him together.